Blog Talk Radio. Everyone, you are listening to This Week in Accountable Care, brought to you by ZenateMedia.com, specialist in the digital healthcare conversation, enabling the triple aim. I'm your host and producer of the series, Greg Masters, known to some on Twitter as Two Health Guru and the publisher of the blog, ACOWatch.com. We're broadcasting on Friday, October the 19th from San Diego, California, and I'm absolutely thrilled to have as my special guest today, Lee Hutchins. MBA, who is President and Chief Operating Officer of North American Medical Management of California, Inc., NAM, as they say, develops and manages provider networks, among other things. The title of the broadcast uh, is IPAs, ACOs, and the Future of U.S. Healthcare, The View from a Seasoned California MSO. Now more about Lee. Lee Hutchins has over 20 years of progressively responsible healthcare management experience. She joined NAM in 1993 and has held various positions in the areas of payer and provider contracting, network development, transactional services, and IPA operations. Prior to her NAM tenure, she was employed by FHP Healthcare and held several positions in both staff model and IPA operations. Ms. Hutchins received her B.A. degree in pharmacology from the University of California, Santa Barbara, and her M.B.A. from the Anderson School of Management at UCLA. For additional context and background information on our chat today, uh, see the Aetna press release, Aetna NAM Form Accountable Care Collaboration and Introduce New Health Plans in the San Bernardino and Riverside Counties. You can find that on the blog. Uh, this weekend on this week in accountable care. So, Lee, I know you're here. Thankfully, I'm here. Uh, did I miss? <laughs> <That's my great. laughs> so, did I miss anything on NAM? Can you can you tell us anything more about the organization uh, and its role in accountable care up front, or did I get it basically right? Uh, you did a good job. Uh, NAM's been um, in California since the originally the uh, mid 1990s, managing IPAs. And um, we've been very involved in managed care and then also the evolution of the delivery models up to to the newest um, models that are called these ACOs. Great. So before we get to maybe the broader question about uh, IPAs, ACOs, and the future of U.S. healthcare, and I, I really don't know if that works for you, if it's too broad or what, but let's step back a bit. And, and talk a little bit about the IPA as as a delivery system vehicle that NAM essentially manages, particularly in light of maybe its history. And uh, it, it kind of came on the scene back in the 80s and 90s, sort of fell off the radar screen as as the risk pushback occurred, and then it seems to be resurfacing now in this accountable care conversation. Is is does that? Do you have any thoughts about that? 
Uh, well, the I, yeah, the, as you said, the IPA models um, evolved about in the 80s and, and in the, we'll say the olden days, so to speak, uh, back in the time when I was at FHP. Um, the insurance companies used to have direct contracts with the physicians, so there weren't these formalized um, structures of IPAs. But then the insurance companies started uh, giving the responsibility of managing these networks to the physicians, and that's sort of how the IPAs evolved. They, they've been in California, and they've never really gone away. They've been kind of a foundational model, along with, you know, the staff models of the world and the Kaisers of the world, providing managed care to um, enrollees on both commercial insurance coverage and Medicare um, Advantage insurance coverage since that time. But the IPA model has really evolved to something that's pretty sophisticated. Um, you know, in the, in the IPAs that we manage, we use a lot of capitation. Um, and for people that aren't familiar with that, it's, it's a prepaid form of payment. Um, we've tried to move away as much as we can from a fee-for-service type of reimbursement mechanism because we want the doctors to be taking care of the, the whole patient and not focusing on, you know, widgets and production, but focusing on caring for the patient, whatever the patient needs. We've done a lot in our compensation models related to paying for outcomes um, and paying for quality, paying for patient satisfaction and access and things like that that I think are very important to a patient population. So it's not like the olden days where it was just sort of a pay for production model um, when the patients came in. And I think these types of characteristics of today's IPAs are very um, aligned with the goals of the accountable care uh, movement. Um, you know, we're trying to manage costs, we're trying to improve quality, and we're trying to improve population health. So in today's accountable care conversation, there are a lot of people who are coming at it from the health IT perspective, and they aren't necessarily familiar with the granular nature of HMOs. So could you just briefly contrast the difference between a staff model HMO, a group model, and, and maybe an IPA network model? Sure. So in a, a staff model, it's it's really an employment model. And so there is a uh, usually a professional corporation that employs the physicians that work for that, that staff model. And usually it is both primary care physicians and specialists. Um, when you talk about a group model, it, it's similar in that the physicians are usually employed or on some kind of a salary compensation. Um, groups are more often than not single specialty. So you might have a, you know, a cardiology group or you might have a primary care group, um, but they tend to be a bit smaller than, than the staff models. And then in the models that we manage, we're working with doctors who are private practitioners. They're out in their own offices. They're independent businessmen and women that, you know, take care of patients in their own private office. And they usually have um, contracts with an IPA like ours, and that's how they get access to um, patients in the HMOs. Uh, but they also see patients for PPOs and for, um, you know, straight Medicare. They might see Medi-Cal patients. They usually have a variety of payer sources. Um, so not all of their business typically runs through the HMO um, or through the IPA. 
So it might be fair to say that physicians participating in an IPA configuration would be more of the mainstream medicine ilk. Is that correct? Yeah, I think so. You know, it depends on where you are in the in the country, but um and I can't remember the percentage off the top of my head, but but there is a, a significant percentage of the physicians in the country are in private practice. Um, you know, in our geography, which is the Inland Empire, Riverside and San Bernardino counties, and we also manage um networks down in your area in San Diego County, um most of our physicians are solo practitioners. So they're in very small offices of, you know, one or two physicians. Um, other parts of the country that you go to, they tend to have more group models and more staff models, um, you know, in some geographies. So, you know, it just really varies. Um, but, you know, private practice physicians are, are, you know, kind of the heart and the soul, I think, of medicine in this country. Uh, yeah, one would think. Uh, what, what's hard to get a handle on is reading the tea leaves as to the velocity and rate of conversion from solo practice into some yeah. group, whether it's an institutionally-led initiative by a hospital or, or, or whatnot. So reading those tea leaves is a bit of a challenge. So so back in the day, IPAs were essentially contracting organizations for independent physicians who could put a toe in the water of managed care, but not, you know, get married, if you will, in a staff model where they're essentially employees. Right. So, <laughs> but, you know, what, the IPAs, you know, I think to your point, you know, the, the IPAs, uh, you know, have evolved because they really just used to be contracting vehicles. But now there's much more to an IPA. There are a lot of services that an IPA would provide to its um, affiliated physicians because it's very hard for somebody in a small solo practice to make the IT investments that you might need, for example, um, to you know kind of be able to keep up with the evolution of medicine. And the IPAs do take on a lot of administrative functions that might be otherwise handled by the insurance company, for example. Um, so, you know, the IPAs are providing a lot of services to the um, physicians and then to the patients that belong to those physician offices that the, the doctors really would not have the resources to provide on their own. Absolutely. So talk a little bit about that because that's essentially a maturation cycle that many would say, yeah, it's different this time because back in the day when Healthion launched their ver rather broad, ambitious uh, vision of integrating healthcare. We had pipe-to-pipe -pipe IT, and now we have web-enabled, uh, much more sophisticated platforms. So, talk a little bit about what those services are that create infrastructure and value adds from a NAM perspective. Well, you know, I, I, the evolution of our IT. You know, when I think back, I go back maybe eight or ten years. I mean, it started out very simply with secure email. Um, because if you think about these physicians and IPAs, they're spread out all over the place, um, you know, to cover a geography. And so, you know, we started with the basics, which was let's make sure the physicians have a way to communicate with one another securely and privately about patients. Um, that evolved into um, portal types of systems that almost all IPAs have now, which is the way that they communicate with their physicians. They can process authorizations. Uh, they can look up claims. They can check their eligibility of their patients. Um, they can go there for educational materials um, and things like that. And then kind of the next evolution is the development of disease registries 
and um, these health information exchanges. So, so what the IPAs are trying to do is basically build clinical data repositories. Um, so they have information they can make available to their physicians to help better manage the care of the patient. And we're rather progressive here in California because I, I was reminded earlier this morning in a conversation that had some tethering to accountable care organizations that all health care is local, which you just also reminded me that IPAs never died in, in, in California and they're going strong. But, you know, when you look at the national template, you know, it, it really varies locally. So as you yeah. look, you know, forward into uh, – you know, now you talk about the portal. What's the next step as you migrate from a traditional MSO managing an I, a network of IPAs to essentially an ACO tapestry? What does that look like? Does that involve a patient portal? You know, what what are the sort of the mm -hmm. next steps there? Yeah, I think um, you know the. I think for the on the physician side, it's it's the clinical data repository. But it's not just that it's a repository. I mean, it, it becomes an interactive tool. So it's a way for them to access information they might not have available on the patient in their office. So, for example, they can tell if the patient was recently in the emergency room and what occurred there. Um, or maybe they went to a specialist and they don't have the, you know, the consult note back from the specialist, and they can get that from the, from the clinical data repository. But it's also so they can submit information. They can send in, hey, here's what the patient's, I don't know, their blood pressure is or their BMI, things that could help um, flag patients who might be needed in a chronic care management program. Um, you can do messaging and alerts hey, this patient hasn't had a mammogram in two years. You need to get this patient a mammogram or this patient is due for, you know, a colonoscopy screening. So I think what happens is the the data, you know, becomes almost live in the doctor's office, um, you know, to help better manage the care of the patient. And then I think you're right. The other the other piece of that is, is the, the patient and what information the patient has access to. And so I think we will see the growth of patient portals and they'll be two-way. They'll, they'll allow patients to, you know, contribute data and to be able to dialogue, you know, potentially with their, their practitioners. And it's a way for the, the providers to either send data out or receive data from a patient. So are you on a common EHR framework at NAM with, with, your, well, uh, with your member practices? You know, what, what we did, um, we work with, we have almost 600 primary care physicians we work with in the three counties. So from a practical standpoint, we did not think we would be able to get everybody on a common EMR. Um, and because some people had already gone down a path and some people weren't ready. But what we did do is we selected a platform that we said we would support. And we went and negotiated very good pricing and discounts for the physicians. And so if they would like to, you know, um, join our EMR program, they are able to do that. Um, we've, we've provided some financial support. Um, we let them pay for the, the system over time, but they ultimately own it. Um, but what we also did is we bought um, HIE capability. We bought some software from a vendor um, overseas in, in England, actually, or Scotland, I'm sorry, and it's a platform that will allow any certified EMR to connect. 
So that's really how we are going to work around this issue of having so many doctors that might be on different platforms. It, they, there's kind of like a generic plug. As long as they have um, an ONC certified system, they'll be able to connect to our HIE and we'll be able to communicate um, in a, on a two-way basis. Makes sense. So how do you see essentially uh, the future for, for NAM? Is it as an integrator of uh, IPAs? Is it, a, is it a, is a conduit from a virtual practice to ultimately a fully integrated um, delivery system? What, what, what do you see the forward vision there? You know, I think, I think we are going to be an integrator. And I think that, um, as you suggested earlier, probably more physicians um, in, in the future than in the past are looking for arrangements with, um, you know, salaries and, and set hours. And they may not be as inclined to go into private practice. So I think our model is going to evolve. We will always have physicians in private practice, and we're going to want to help them be integrated, and I think technology will be a big piece of that. Um, but I, I do see probably physician practices coming together more in the future and forming groups. So I think our model will evolve to more of a hybrid, and what we'll essentially do is have a virtual-looking, um, almost a staff model because we'll have um, private practice, solo doctors, we'll have group models, we'll have PCPs, we'll have specialists, and if we can get them all connected through common um, platform, you know, our HIE, then they'll be able to function like a virtual group. And, and are you more like a monarch that doesn't have a, a hospital affiliate, single hospital sponsorship or affiliation? You can deal as a free agent, if you will, in the in the market as far as hospital services are concerned? Yeah, we we are like that because we cover the Inland Empire is something like 24,000 square miles. So we tend to have IPAs that are in, you know, aggregated in communities and then they'll usually have one or two hospitals that each IPA works with. So between San Diego and the Inland Empire, we have about 10 primary admitting hospitals that we use. And and the in, Inland Empire has been historically Managed care friendly is that a is that a correct uh, evaluation? I think so. Um, way back when, before it used to be called Medicare Advantage, and I'm not even going to remember the terminology, but some of the very first um, Medicare demonstration projects actually started in this region, where where they were moving Medicare beneficiaries into managed care plans. Right, I think that was Medicare Choice. And uh, yeah. <laughs> once upon a time, I remember a gentleman by the name of Herb Fritch, who was over at Partners at that point. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, it's, it always seems like uh, the Inland Empire was uh, pretty proactive uh, on the managed competition front. So I, I doubt that's changed. Uh, that, that's gone. In fact, isn't Caremore uh, 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 a byproduct of the Inland Empire competitive marketplace? Um, well, Caremore actually started in the. Um, the Downey area, um, trying okay. to long beach for Downey, and it, but they have expanded out here. Um, they have okay. Yeah, and it's yeah. funny that you mentioned Herb because he was one of the co-founders of, of NAM, actually. Uh, Herb Fritch and Jack Jordan. <laughs> uh, yes, Herb Fritch. So, um, 
let's maybe pivot a little bit to the relationship with um, Aetna that that was um, announced. And a shout out to my friends over at the Dodge Communications for bringing, for actually making this conversation happen today. Uh, talk a little bit about your internal process to. Uh, uh, elect a relationship with that. Now, what was um, what? What do they bring to the table? I, I know they're going through an incredible transformation that uh, Mark Bertolini sees no future for traditional health insurers and is trying to create this ecosystem where they're a value-added player as an informational utility company, bringing decision support into the ecosystem. So clearly, they're establishing themselves in that regard. Talk about what what led you to uh, work with Aetna in terms of your, I guess, your initial ACO initiative? Yeah, we've had a, we've, we've worked with Aetna for a long time um, on the managed care front. And I think they were actually one of the first health plans that, like you said, back to the partners days that was contracted with the prime care network. And over time, our, our HMO a relationship with them has evolved to where we, we, we take global risk what, what that means is we don't just take professional risk where we're paying physicians, we take institutional risk where we're where we are responsible for hospital costs and uh, DME costs and things like that. So um, both of us recognize um, you know the dynamic in the inland empire where the the recession hit here particularly hard, um, one of the hardest hit regions in the country. And we were both seeing declining commercial membership because people were losing their jobs um, or their employers were shifting them over to, you know, plans with deductibles um, or, you know, just much lower coverage type of plans. So that was a concern for us, and we wanted to figure out a way where we could put something out in the market that would be really um, – tailored to the dynamics in, in our communities. We, we have many, uh, gosh, I don't remember the numbers, but small businesses are the preponderance of the employers in our geography here. And so, and they're usually under 50. There's, there's over a million um, employees in the Inland Empire that are employed by somebody of 50 or less employees. We have another 1 million residents that are uninsured at this time and getting close to a million people that are in the managed care Medi-Cal plans here. So um, we needed to address affordability, and we want people to have comprehensive coverage. So it really, this has actually taken a couple of years, if you can believe it. Um, you know, putting our heads together, working together on benefit design, um, where we could find opportunities in the system to be able to reduce costs, um, how we could make sure that what we were bringing to the table was complementary to and not redundant to what Aetna was doing and vice versa. And so, you know, over time that evolved to where we have a couple of HMO products and a couple of PPO products. And this will be, you know, I think what's novel about this on the PPO side is that we will actually um, have an element of risk in this. So it's not just our network, it's that we're going to help Aetna manage the PPO population. Um, and it's not going to look like HMO where you have to get prior authorization and things like that, but it's about trying to keep patients in the network, trying to make sure they understand their choices of where to receive services that might be more cost-effective for them um, while still yielding quality outcomes. 
And so, you know, this is still going to be an evolution over the next few years um, because it's new. Yeah, that's perfect. I have a question on Twitter from Vince Caritas of uh, Better Health Technologies. He says, uh, 50% of patients are in PPOs. How will PPOs and ACO blend? Yeah. Well, I, I think they will blend because, the, you know, the the problem with PPOs is there's not really a cost management element to them. You know, they're great because patients have choice um, and they can, they can choose where they want to go, but... Um, but they haven't really done anything in the PPO model or much of anything to be able to make it sustainable from a cost effect, uh, perspective. So with the physicians working together here with the plan, we think we'll be able to influence and, and bend the cost curve on these PPO patients. They'll still have choice, um, but they'll have more guidance you know, from their physicians and helping them make those choices than they, they currently have in a traditional um, HMO environment. And then we have elements in our in our product with um, Aetna where we, we are incentivized to make sure that we do well on quality um, metrics. Um, so it's not all just about cost. It's, it's, again, it's looking at the triple aim, you know, better population health, better individual care, and better management of cost. So it might be fair to say that this broader tapestry of HMO guidance, and, and there you have the, the government portion, Medicare specifically, and, and, and the iterations under federal regs, and then you have the commercial mm -hmm. marketplace, which has more freedom as to defining mm -hmm. what are accountable care relationships vis-a-vis -vis contracts. Could it be that we're going to finally see PPOs express themselves into more managed more managed plans, albeit under an umbrella of an accountable care framework? Um, I hope so, because I, I think I think that is necessary and I and I think that is the direction that we need to go. You know, it's it's obviously the, the health care costs in this country and the trend is unsustainable. And the nice thing about working on a product like this on the commercial front, like you said, we can be much more flexible. We can be more creative. We can be innovative. And what Aetna has talked about with us, you know, right now, you know, we're two legs of the three-legged stool, and, and the third leg is kind of the employer and the um, patient. And so over time as we develop and evolve this, we want the employers and the patients, the people, you know, paying for the care, to also be involved in the decision-making processes. That's where we're going to be able to, I think, have an impact on, on cost. It's, it's amazing to me that you know, our tenures are similar in terms of tracking with the birth of managed care in California, that we're in 2012, <laughs> and we're still talking about the effective integration of those three legs of the wobbly stool. Um, but yep. it is what it is, and it used to be that uh, our conversations about the prohibitive and uh, cost of health care and its rate of inflation was restricted to health policy wonks and health care leadership, but that's no longer the case because essentially our entire economy is now at risk, and we've got to come – business mm -hmm. as usual is no longer an option. We have to come up with solutions. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Which is why I've been a fan of the Affordable Care Act, and I think that there's a very real benefit to be expected from 
of the accountable care provisions as well as the CMMI uh, uh, expressions uh, as well. So were you where were you on the front end of this? Were you excited about ACOs? Did you think it was just HMO light and here we go again too little too late or did you see some promise here? Um that's an interesting question. You know, I think when I first heard about it, I thought my immediate reaction is well that's managed care. But but it really isn't. Um because you know, there are elements in accountable care that are different in managed care. And I think, again, the patient choice and the patient voice take a more prominent role in an accountable care um, uh, organization. And, and I also think the physician voice. You know, the, the other thing that's, that's changing here is the relationships between the insurance companies and the providers. You know, it, it used to be more of a top-down approach from the insurance companies of, of, you know, here's the rules and here's, you know, who gets to say yes and no. And now it's more coming up from the physicians in terms of, you know, this is how we need to take care of these patients. So, you know, I think um, clearly the country has to do something different. So, you know, are, are accountable cares the end all of the, the solution? I don't know that. But I think it's defi- they're definitely a step in the right direction. I'm glad to hear you say that, and uh, I'll do a shout-out for the Society of Participatory Medicine, which is one of the, the vehicles for that voice of patient engagement, particularly enabled by some of the newer technologies and the social media communities that have been exploding. So uh, do you have any uh, last thoughts? We're coming down here on the very end of the broadcast, and I'm just thoroughly engaged by by your experience. would love to have you back to talk further as this plays out, but uh, any any concluding thoughts? Uh, no, I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. You know, we're very excited about this product with Aetna. I think it has a lot of promise. Um, we, we certainly do not have it all figured out yet, but, you know, we're working very closely together, and I think we'll be able to evolve this into to something that's very good for our community, um, and I'm excited about that. Well, there you have it, Lee. I want to thank you again for your time today. Thank my friends at Dodge Communications and heads up to the Aetna folk. This has been another episode of This Week in Accountable Care. Please join us next week. I'll have another uh, surprise broadcast for you with some top talent in the industry. We do this weekly. Please join us. Thanks again, Lee. This is Greg Master saying bye now. Thanks, Greg.
Which way? 